Psalm 74, again, Psalm 74. And I'll not read the text again. It's a lengthy text, and I read it just moments ago. And uh, we want to look at it under a different heading. Despite the claims of some, the Psalms are of great importance to the people of God even now in the day and age in which we live. There are three things about the Psalms that we need to remember as we look at any of them, and this one in particular. First of all, we need to remember that the Psalms are poetry. Now, they don't look like poetry to us because when we think of poetry, we think of rhyme and rhythm and uh, other uh, poetic um, uh, means to communicate something a little bit different than, say, narrative. Hebrew poetry is marked by parallelism. So the author will say something, and then he will say the very opposite, and then he'll bring the two together. Or he'll say something, and then he'll say it again in a different way and bring it all together uh, thirdly, somewhere along any of those and other lines. It's marked by parallelism, and you need to keep that Uh, in mind, and the repetition is there for a reason, and it has some significance and importance. Secondly, the book of the Psalms is a book of praise. God is at the center of the Bible, Um, and uh, yet when we come to the Psalms, we see that, as it were, in spades. And in fact, it was the book of praise, for um, our Hebrew friends. It's the Jewish hymn book, or was the Jewish hymn book, and for the first 500 years of the Christian church's existence, the church sang almost exclusively the Psalms. And then thirdly, it's a prayer book. It's, uh, it's useful um, when we're passing through per particular experiences to read the Psalms and to pray them back to God. Now, other passages of Scripture can be used similarly, but the Psalms in particular have that um, value. In fact, Calvin said of the Psalms that the Psalms reflect all parts of the soul. Whatever it is you're feeling, um, good or bad, as it were, uh, helpful or not helpful. Uh, the psalmist experienced it as well. It's a book to turn to again and again and again. Now, earlier in January, as we began the new year, I took this psalm and preached it in two sermons. And you'll notice in, in some of your Bibles, there's kind of a break. There's there's uh, the, the, uh, um, the printer uh, uh, sort of left an extra space between verse 11 and 12. And I think that's appropriate because um, really there are two sections to the psalm with, with two sub-themes um, uh, reflected in these verses. The psalmist is distressed. The psalmist is disturbed. 
And it's not because of some personal loss, some personal attack upon himself, but rather what grieves him terribly is the attack made upon God himself, the people of God, and the worship of God. And so in the first 11 verses, we have despair or despondency. The sorrows of the people of God. Again, not personal sorrows. We do have them. But that's not the focus of of this particular psalm. And I entitled it at the time, A Trial of Tears. It's a psalm of lament, at least in this part of the psalm. A lamentation, grieving, as we noted in that sermon several weeks ago. And then in verses 12 through 23, the psalmist changes gears in the sense that he comforts himself. What what is the comfort that the people of God can, may, and ought to receive and, and expect in times of great distress? Distress that has fallen upon the people of God and their worship. And the psalmist gives to us, Asaph, the psalmist, the human author, gives to us a number of things um, in which we might rejoice and ought to rejoice even in a context which seems so uh, despairing and so difficult at the time. And so in verses 12 through 23, we have what I called a tale of triumph. The psalmist recalls, the psalmist recollects what what God has done for his people. Now in a sense, both despondency and recovery um, are found in both halves of the psalm. But in a general sense, The psalm may be divided that way. Despair or despondency, repair or recovery. As I sat in my study one day and was thinking about the psalm after I preached those two um, messages, it occurred to me that there's something in the psalm that we did not really emphasize as I preached through the section. And that is the whole matter of supplication or prayer. This really is a prayer, and, and I've said that, and I said that a few moments ago in the introduction, that the Psalms are a prayer book. They're an Old Testament prayer book suitable for the people of God even today. And so the title of this particular sermon, and of course it's not printed in the bulletin because I wasn't expecting to preach this morning, but the title of the sermon is A Template for Trusting Prayer. Here again is despondency, here again is recovery, blessing God, uh, doing something, having done something for his people in the past. And it gives to us a kind of, of template as to how we ought to pray when we find the church in a very low state. And so I want to recast 
Um, not recast the text, I can't do that, and I wouldn't want to do that, but recast an outline to reveal what we might call a method of prayer. Um, here is how we ought to pray. Here's a model of prayer. We have a model prayer in, um, in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And uh, we have Jesus praying in John 17. And, and uh, at different times, we've looked at, at both of those uh, prayers and we've expounded them. And hopefully they've been helpful as we think of our own, our own prayer experience. But here's also a model for prayer, a method for prayer. In fact, Matthew Henry wrote a book one time entitled The Method of Prayer. And so here is a method of prayer. Here is a psalm that teaches us how to pray during a downturn in the church's fortunes. How to pray, a method of prayer, a model of prayer. How should we pray as we address God and ask Him for help? Well, there are nine things, I think, that are included in the text. As we pray, we ought to pray that God should act because of the misery of His people. The psalmist begins by expressing this sentiment that that God may have cast him off or them off since Asaph uh, was responsible for uh, the worship of God uh, under David. And perhaps it became a kind of of office and uh, there were others who went by the name of Asaph in later days. And so the psalm begins as we noted, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke, perhaps like the smoke rising from the sacrifices in Jerusalem? But he refers to them as sheep in that same verse. Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? The point we made at the time was that Sheep belong to an owner and the sheep of God's pasture belong to to him. But we need to remember as well that sheep are weak and defenseless. And so the psalmist is looking at himself and he's looking at the people of God that are under great pressure, uh, perhaps under one of the periods of persecution by the Babylonians uh, or later or, or at some particular place. And so they're defenseless, they're They're sheep. And so God, please come and act. Restore the fortunes of your people and answer the curiosity or the perplexity that your people have. Have you really forgotten us? Have you truly abandoned us? Has he really cast us off? Of course, the answer is no. But we need the comfort of that answer. As weak, defenseless sheep who have no power, no ability whatsoever at all to correct what we face. And so God, please come, please act because of your beloved people and the miserable situation 
or at least the feeling of being in a miserable situation. Secondly, God should act, or we call upon God to act, because of the recovery of his people. And we noted last time, or the time before, that there were three things said about God's people. They were sheep, meaning they were a part of his flock, they belonged to him. They were um, saved, that is, a part of that congregation which the Lord himself has delivered. And he's given to them uniquely the public means of grace. They had the sanctuary. Nobody else had the sanctuary. And it was localized, to be sure. And the sanctuary is not localized. Um, There are sanctuaries. There are local visible churches. But the means of grace are not given to everybody. And as we think of that, there are a great many, thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of people that do not have access to God through the means which he has appointed for their salvation and for their sanctification. And so the psalmist reminds God that he has already given to them enormous benefits. He's already given to us enormous benefits. Of all the people on the planet, of all the people on the face of the earth, the millions and millions, now billions of people, how many have those benefits? But they have them. And we have them. And whether large or small, by way of size and numbers, those benefits still belong to the people of God and only to the people of God. No one else can claim to be God's sheep. No one else can claim to be a part of that congregation, that company of the saved. And no one else has the public means of grace. Now, obviously, people may come and may hear and become Christians and and all of that. But that's not the psalmist's point here. The psalmist reminds God, and prayer often is doing that, reminding God of what he's already done. Here, O God, is what you have done. So you really haven't cast us off. Because we alone are the sheep of your pasture. We are alone are, are, are... are a part of that number of the people of God. And we alone have access in the public means of grace to you. The thirdly, the psalmist prays to God and calls upon him to act because of the casualty of public worship. There are attacks from without and there are attacks from within. And the psalmist begins by drawing attention 
to the ruins of the sanctuary. And he's thinking specifically of the temple in Jerusalem built under Solomon, David collecting all of the materials, Asaph being leader of public worship, as it were. And so psalmist bemoans the fact that the temple has been either demolished and destroyed, as it was on one occasion, two occasions actually, or whether it was uh, merely... uh, spoiled, as it were, with the offering of, of the blood of pigs upon the altar before the return of the people of God. And so, and in addition to that, he finds that the enemy has run up its flag within the very sanctuary itself. Those ensigns, those signs, those, those banners, rather, um, that were uh, belonged to pagan gods or to pagan kings, reflecting pagan gods. That idolatry has come into the very sanctuary of God before it was destroyed. So the surrounding culture had invaded the sanctuary, and then literally, it was burned to the ground. And so there are these attacks from without and prior to the actual destruction and demolition attacks from within as well. And we see the same thing today in terms of the culture and uh, the religious culture invading the church and the true church of God finding itself so often in difficult circumstances, finding it difficult to get a hearing, just even get a hearing, people to listen because of the influences of the culture, of false faiths and the false religions. Worship is important to God. He instituted it. And the psalmist in his prayer reminds God of this casualty as if to say this ought to be and surely is important to you. Later he speaks in verse 8 of burning up of the synagogues, not only was the temple brought to ruin, but those places where the people of God gathered for public worship from week to week, since most people went to the, to the temple, went to um, the temple in Jerusalem, um, the sanctuary, only three times a year that, that was required of them, and they would Travel, And we have a series of psalms, the psalms of going up, the psalms of ascent, Psalm 120 through 135, which the people would sing. But that was only three times a year. What did they do the rest of the time? Well, as we noted, that there were undoubtedly gatherings for prayer and for the hearing of the word of God scattered throughout the land. 
And even these are burned up. You couldn't hide. So you couldn't move to some rural area and find a, a gathering of the people of God and there meet in secret and meet in silence. It wasn't even possible to do. And there are places in the world that are exactly the same today, North Korea. Very difficult to gather at all. Places are burned up, they're destroyed. Here as the psalmist speaks. There's no place to worship God. Now we may think of private worship and that certainly has value and it's certainly important. And we worship God as we read our Bibles and the rest. But God has instituted public worship and he has since the very beginning. And it's significant, it's important. Why? Because God instituted it. And then the enemy has come in and has found a way to destroy both the sanctuary in Jerusalem and those public gatherings, those small gatherings of people in cities and towns and villages scattered throughout the land. Well, fourthly, the psalmist calls upon God to act because of the rarity or scarcity of the preaching of the word of God. Now that seems as if it's redundant, but the psalmist emphasizes that and singles that out um, as uh, uh, certainly a part of, of the, uh, the believing community's uh, health and sanctification. In verse 9 it says, we see not our signs. Remember the, the signs, the flags were the flags of the enemy in the temple before its destruction. There is no more any prophet. Neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. The scarcity, the rarity of the proclamation of the word of God. There are various periods of time in Old Testament history when even kings would send prophets throughout the land to preach the word of God, to, bring, to preach or to bring God's message to the people. But that wasn't the case as the psalmist reflects on his own day. And of course, as we saw, Spurgeon said that, that this psalm can be applied at, at various times in the history of the people of God since we don't really know the precise time in which this or these events took place. And so it's kind of a, a conglomerate, a gathering, a bringing together of multiple occasions. And here is a, a reference to a famine of the word of God as one of the prophets said. There's a famine of the preaching of the word of God. There's a famine of the heralding of the word of God. And we reflected um, recently on how true that is in the world in which we live today. That is the word of God in all of its simplicity, clarity, in all of its full theology and all of the rest. How, how little true preaching there really is in the world in which we live. False gospels, false religions, and all of the rest. Some of them even claiming to be Christian. And so God, act. Act because this is your word. Act because you've given your word. 
Act because you have revealed yourself and now that revelation is being smothered. Open the windows of heaven and let the word be preached. I think one of the, the, the great blessings, um, one of the, the great advances, one of the great mercies that God has given to us is the uh, Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies and the training of ministers. When I, when I first began the ministry, you could count um, confessional Reformed Baptist uh, or even confessional Presbyterians, um, I was going to say on, on the fingers of one hand, there were more than that, but it was certainly uh, far fewer. And now we have institutions assisting and helping the church and IRBS is, is one of them. And there's, there's a, a whole um, uh, army, uh, as it were, even in the last 30 years now of, of men or 20 years um, going out to preach the word of God. And so God, act because of the misery of your people. Act because you've already recovered them. Will you, will you abandon them? Act because of the causality, or casualty rather, of your worship. You're not being worshipped as you ought to be. Act, O oh God, because of the rarity, the scarcity of your word and the proclamation of your word. And then fifthly, O oh God, act because of the blasphemy of your name. And he mentions this in verse 18. Remember this. And it's a, a, a strong uh, introduction, is it not? It's not as if God forgets anything, but... The psalmist reminds him to remember because it's important to him. It's important to God, but it's important to the psalmist. Remember this, that the enemy hath reproached, O Jehovah, and that a foolish people hath blasphemed thy name. Now we think of the third commandment and taking the Lord's name in vain, and we think of specific and particular um, calloused and uh, cruel and crude language that uh, people might use, but to, but to misuse the name of God is to blaspheme His name. And consider how little respect the name of God, the integrity of God, the character of God has in the world in which we live today. Most of us are old enough to remember an earlier day, a simpler day, when God's name, even from unbelievers, was at least to some degree revered. And that's not to say that people didn't take his name in vain, but his name was revered and now there's so little reverence for the name of God. His integrity is, is trampled underfoot and, and trashed and he's mocked and even in Christian circle, circles sometimes there, is, there are references to him and references to his character that are, that are far beneath him. Your name, O oh God, is taken 
in vain. And then sixthly, God act. And he ought to act. And we ought to call upon him to act because of the relationship that we sustain and the history of his working among us. Somewhat repetitious, but, but a little bit different. Notice verse 19. Oh, deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove. It's a, a, a reference to, to tenderness, uh, to, to love and to, to charity, love in, in that sense. The turtle dove, again, like the, the meekest of, of birds. And so the turtle dove is about to be destroyed. Turtle dove, dove is about to be brought to ruin. And oh God, let that not happen. Remember the love that you've had for your people. And again, remember your having delivered them and that they are who they are, the turtle dove belonging to you. And then seventhly, God should act or we call upon him to act because of the fidelity of his promise. Notice the next verse, have respect unto the covenant for the dark places of the earth are full of the inhabitants of violence. Have respect unto the covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. Covenant is a, a pledge and a promise. And it's a pledge and a promise in the context made by God himself. It's unalterable. It is not taken away. It's not violated. God has made a promise. God has pledged himself and he's pledged his own son in the new covenant to be the deliverer of his people, the savior of his people. God is a God of promise. God is the God of promise who fulfills every promise that he's made. Take a moment, take a moment again to read Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10 and notice the, the, the benefits and the privileges of the covenant that God has made to his people. And then eighthly, the psalmist in verse 21 says, we call upon God to act and God should act because of the morality of his universe. In verse 21, Oh, let not the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise thy name. The universe that God created and the universe that God initially imposed was one of moral order. And the poor were not to be trampled upon. The oppressed were to be protected. And so here the psalmist prays that God 
might remember the immorality, remember the difficulty that the poor and the oppressed, the needy, uh, truly face and come to reverse that which has come to be so common. And then ninthly and finally, O God, act. We call upon you to act because of the centrality of your purposes. We're not calling upon you to do some strange thing. We're not calling upon you to do something that is out of character. But we're calling upon you, and as, as he reflects, by way of conclusion, after mentioning all of these things as reasons to ask God to act. A model of prayer, a template for prayer. Oh God, remember, these are the things that you have said and these are the things that you have promised and these are the things that you said that you would bestow. Now, remember, by way of some conclusion, I think, the centrality of your purpose. What is it that you have claimed that you will do? That is to glorify yourself through the destruction of wickedness and the salvation of guilty sinners. This is how God glorifies himself. Now, we can think of of other things which move us and we say, well, God surely glorified himself in this or that or something else. But remember, God's, if I could put it this way, basic purpose to glorify himself through destruction of wickedness and the salvation of guilty sinners who call upon him. Now he says that, I think, in three different ways, as we noted last time. Oh, let not the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise thy name. Arise, O God, plead thine own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproacheth thee all the day. Forget not the voice of thine adversaries. Pay attention to that which your adversaries are saying and doing. Forget not the voice of thine adversaries, the tumult of of those that rise up against thee, ascendeth continually. Remember that. Remember that, O God. That this is contrary to your announced plan and purpose. This is not right, and you've said it's not right. So, arise. Notice The psalmist doesn't say, tell me what to do. Give me the secret of bringing all of this to an end and uh, to somehow see the glory of God um, maintained. He doesn't ask 
for God to reveal to him what resources he has or we have, but rather God arise. You're the only one can resolve, that can resolve this dilemma. Now he uses human instruments to be sure, but it's only when God arises that all of this contrariness will be resolved. And so God, please act because of the centrality of your purpose, your character, your name is besmirched. Your integrity is called into question. Not only is your question your, or your character called into question, but this is your cause. This is your plan. Plead your own cause. Remember the circumstances that we face. And then thirdly, in the very last verse, remember, O God, that you have competitors. That there is a competition. The world behaves, the culture behaves, false religion behaves as a competitor to God's integrity and his glory. And so, ninthly then, God, act, please, because of the centrality of your purpose that we don't see being realized today. And so, as I sat in my study, as I said, it occurred to me that there is more here than just despondency and uh, crying out to God because of the circumstances. And there's a sense in which there's even more here than just a kind of a tale of triumph. But, it, but it's a text that actually teaches us how to pray. And it teaches us how to pray for the church and for the churches. Not only here, in our own little small part of the world, but throughout the country and beyond in the world. And so we pray for our church and we pray for sister churches. We do that every, every week in prayer meeting. And we pray for churches in the other part of the world. And of course, each of these places have their own challenges. And even here in the U.S., the challenges that we face are not necessarily the challenges that somebody in, say, Georgia or Louisiana uh, might face or, or Texas. And the same thing is true for us generically in terms of the challenges that our whole culture faces are different than the challenges that are being faced in Myanmar uh, or in Cuba or in some other part of the world. But basically the issues are the same. And here is a way to pray and to pray for the churches, calling upon God to act because of the downturn 
uh, or the misery, present misery of his people. Because he's acted in the past and who the people of God are. Because of the casualty of public worship and the rarity and the scarcity of the word of God truly being preached and proclaimed. Because all of this really is blasphemy against God. God, how can you tolerate such blasphemy when it is contrary to your very commands? God, remember who we are. The turtle dove, the, the, the ones who are, are your chief delight. Act because you're a covenant-keeping God, the fidelity of your promise. Act because of the immorality of your universe or the morality of it in the present immorality and, and wrongness. And then finally, act because your purposes, at least to us, do not seem to be realized. It was William S. Plummer, Southern Presbyterian, great Christian leader, great writer, who said this, let us pray without ceasing. We may do more by our prayers than the mightiest by their weapons. The poor may do as much as the rich and more if they be poor in spirit.